0: It's the Stazapod. Question and answers. That's the subject of today. But before I get into your questions, I've had a quite phenomenal experience here. Finally, at long last, in my possession, in my eyeline right now, are the paint samples for Crow Mega. He does exist. There was a time when I thought maybe this was going to be a lost project, a figure that I actually do not bring to market. But he's here, he's real. Uh, Timing-wise, this means that we'll definitely have Chromega before the end of the year. With a little luck, it will be within the next... uh, I'm sort of like uh, hesitant to say, but uh, possibly within four to six weeks. Now, uh, as I've talked about in almost every single Distazopod this year... The supply chain is is uh, pretty out of whack, and I've been experiencing supreme delays uh, in many different aspects, from sort of getting the goods to leave China to uh, a lack of pilots uh, for the air freight planes, and then also delays once they get here stateside. Uh, so I... Don't know that I would bet on four to six weeks, but I, I feel comfortable saying Chromega will be in your hand before the end of this year. And with a little luck, uh, potentially sooner than that. But here's my bigger point in bringing this up. One, uh, I'm super excited to share this with you guys. I'm super excited to send out to the to Design and Night customizers the fully painted version of their characters that they but they're hard earned cash up to produce so long ago. I think they're gonna be very happy. And of course, I wanna fulfill this uh, big commitment to you guys. You all threw your money my way. I don't take that lightly. And I always feel very accomplished when I can finally deliver a long gestating project. And I think everybody's gonna love this. But the uh, striking thing, my number two point here, is that something has occurred to me that I never thought or felt before in relation to Chromega until now. The near final product is my hand. And that is this sentiment here. Uh, I have my own He-Man now. A lot of people have been asking for He-Man homages. Uh, those are certainly a very popular color scheme within independent toys. Uh, it's nothing I've ever done. Uh, He-Man was sort of interesting to me as a kid, but because they broke so easily and I was almost always relegated to sort of Uh, second-hand He-Man or tag sale finds or things from a flea market. They almost always were, you know, really literally about to burst at any moment. Uh, It it really didn't stick with me the way a lot of other brands in the 80s did. And I've mentioned before, I sort of dip my toe in whenever there's a toy relaunch and pick up a couple figures, but I don't have the deep love of He-Man that I think most people my age do and most people in this hobby do. And I'm sort of glad for that. And I'm glad that I never really went down the homage color scheme uh, rabbit hole with He-Man. Because now I think I have my own version of that. I have my own muscle-bound barbarian. And I think when you pick this figure up, you're going to feel the same way I did when I was a kid. And I came across my first He-Man figure. You know, just this this sort of heft, this, this uh, godlike figure the the think of the trapezoids on him my god um so that's the sort of experience i'm having right now i think also because it's so much bigger than a knight of the slice figure it feels like a heftier figure the same way when you might have been playing with gi joe guys and then you picked up a he-man figure it just seemed so much more massive and you know a much bigger presence and uh I think that's the vibe this is giving off, and I I hope it's the same for you guys. Uh, But we got finally a sort of proper sword swinging barbarian, and the best part is it is sort of free of the baggage of anybody else's IP. It's free of the baggage of nostalgia. It is a unique creation, and uh, I also think the styles we're going to launch with it's going to be similar to how we did Send Five. It's going to be two painted styles and two unpainted styles that correspond with those base plastic colors. Um, I think you're really going to love the initial colorways. Uh, there's, I, I would say all of these colorways are really fantastic, but the initial two ones I think work the best and I think are probably going to be the most interesting to people. And um, this is just uh, its a fantastic day. I'm super pumped. There's a lot of work ahead of me in, in terms of uh, setting up the photo booth and kind of going to town and photographing every conceivable com- combination of these characters, but it's gonna be a lot of fun. This is sort of you know, the best moment in toy making is when you get your first painted samples. Uh, there's just kind of, it's, it's the best part of the experience. Like, getting the first test shot is always very interesting, but there's always a lot of work to be done and it can feel so far away from being final and complete. But the first paint sample day, uh, that I think is like the birth of a toy, the finality of it. And uh, it's an electric experience. So if you're more inclined like me and you feel a little sick of He-Man, or you've just been ignoring all the buzz and the arguments online about the new series and the new toy lines and etc., etc., the good news is, there's something new and fresh on the way and uh i really am looking forward to sort of unrolling the story of chromega and all his cohort and getting back to pangea island i I think it's going to be a fantastic sort of segment of the night of the slice world so big thank you and big shout out to everybody who backed this campaign uh i will make available an early bundle set to patrons I know a lot of our patrons are brand new. Welcome to all of you. And I know a lot of you were not around for the campaign of Chromega and Send5. I'm gonna make the same offer I did with Send5. I will sort of get a bundle up for pre-order for you guys early, and you can not have to worry about when it comes to the store and sort of gets released. As we saw with Send5, that sort of initial four offerings, some of those styles go very quick, and there's not a lot of inventory of. Uh, because of Crow Mega being the second figure in that campaign, he actually has a little bit less inventory than Send5, if that makes sense. The reason being, uh, when people just selected one single figure in the campaign, they got a Send5, right? And while most people got all the figures, there was a majority, there was a sort of minority of people that opted for one figure. So, thusly sent there are more sort of send fives that were produced to satisfy that one figure tier than there are of the crow mega figures so if you are a patron i think it would behoove you to sort of go for this pre-order when it's up Uh, i don't think we're going to have a huge sort of rush and sell out and scarcity but it is going to be less available than what we did on send five with any luck one style of crow will sort of Uh, hang out in the store for a long time. I always try to have one of every style of figure available as a sort of evergreen. But who knows? It's very hard to predict these things. Um, I I don't think I've been right in predicting demand for any of this stuff. It's always a sort of surprise. Um, I would say Sen5 certainly had a lot more converts once he was out there, right? Uh, Once people got that figure in hand... I saw multiple orders. People kept coming back to the well to buy more and more, buy the other styles. I think Sen really won people over. My prediction for Crow, which I acknowledge is a foolhardy thing. I'm probably going to be wrong on every account here. My prediction is that when people see these first two painted styles, they are going to lose their fucking mind. That's what I think. I think these are probably the strongest sort of uh, initial offerings we could possibly make. And I think that there is actually going to be a, a big hype for people coming late to the party. But again, I could be totally wrong. I guess the moral of the story here is, if you're not a patron, you might want to become a patron. And you can do that at patreon.com slash jessiedestazio. And uh, even if you sign up for the lower tier, which is $5, you're still going to have access to pre-order opportunities uh, you're still gonna see behind the scenes photos. It's gonna be a whole lot of great stuff to share. So, to sort of uh, put a fork in this, Crow is nearly complete. We are inching towards the finish line. I am super excited. Uh, I will get a pre-order up as soon as I have a sort of concrete date when I know this boy is gonna land. Uh, we are going to get back to Pangaea Island. I have massive amounts of story to share in that location. And in short time, we're going to be able to close the book on Sen5 and Crow Mega's crowdfunding campaign, and everybody will have all the wonderful product they ordered. So, my thanks to you guys. I'm excited to start rolling this stuff out. And uh, let's hop into some questions. Okay. Now, we're going to hop into our questions. First up is Charlie Pope. Are there Cherubium we've seen, the Mars Scout Force, Action Figure of the Month, Z-Star 7, the same characters, or are there multiple rabbits, reptiles, birds out there? Uh, There are multiple uh, characters that happen to be these uh, different animals. And there are animals in Cherubium beyond just the three that we've sort of sculpted and released so far. So uh, as the years move on, you can expect to meet a lot more of the Cherubium. And I like to think of each individual release in the store as being a separate entity entirely. Next up, Gordon McKinnon Hall. Is there a functional reason for the elongated helmet of the Verkill? Hidden sensors, breathing apparatuses, hidden weapons. Uh, these are all fantastic ideas, so let's just go with yes uh, to all of them. Uh, there is a sort of sculptural uh, reason for the look of the Verkill's elongated helmet. And that is uh, me wanting to have something that really looked non-human and, and sort of disturbing and sort of abjectly terrifying. Uh, you know, I think of, like, seeing the space jockey in the original Alien when I was a kid, and, and just uh, before, like... The Dark Horse comic started to explain what that was and, and long before Prometheus sort of completely peeled away any mystery to it, that was a really very terrifying, uh, disturbing sort of creature, right? It, it certainly wasn't human, although it had some humanoid features. And that just really stuck to me in my core. Like, what was that space jockey? What on, what you know, where the hell did this come from? So uh, kind of some of that terror I wanted to instill in an alternate look for the Verkill. And, uh, you're actually going to see at some point in the future some painted versions of this head, which I think, uh, even uh, further add to the mystery of it. Next up, Ian Amling, what is your most memorable experience from the New York Toy Fair in the 90s? Uh, well, in the 90s, my most memorable, uh, sort of, uh, recall would be uh that i was not yet in the toy industry but however i did used to work the chelsea flea market with my dad on the weekends and that was directly behind the toy building or what was the toy building at the time i believe now they are just office and and uh, apartment buildings um so we would actually go and set up right there right uh you know there used to be a parking lot right behind it um and that's where i would sort of sell comic books and i would buy vintage Star Wars toys on the cheap, and um, so I was not yet sort of in the industry. I was still uh, in high school. Uh, my earliest time going to New York Toy Fair probably would have been, I want to say, 2003, maybe? 2004? And um, i trying to think of like some of the early memories. So I, I first would have gone for jazz wares i do not believe i went during my time at play along um and we had just a really tiny room i was typically sent up about a week ahead of time and had to set up the room uh largely by myself sometimes i had people coming to help um and uh i just remember it's it was a hell of a lot of work but the fun stuff w- happened at nighttime, we would go to UCB Theater, we would go hang out with Jesse Falcon and, and uh, all the people that lived in New York, and uh, part of my enjoyment of New York City after hours during Toy Fair led to me deciding, you know, spur of the moment to kind of pick up and move to New York City. It was also a very, very interesting time to sort of experience the toy industry, right, Because. The Great Contraction had not really happened at that point. Uh, KB was still alive and well, and you know the buyer would come and um, sort of uh, look at the things we were selling. Um, Tower Records was still around. An order from Kmart was actually really meaningful, like you, you really wanted to court that buyer and, and secure that. Uh, Toys R Us, obviously, was still around which is not the case today. You know, it was a very, very interesting sort of precipice the toy industry was on at that period. And if you fast forward, uh, you know, just about 20 years later to today, um, almost and none of those <laughs> retailers are around anymore. You know, it's really, it's quite stark. It's been, it's been stripped bare. I also distinctly remember being across the hall from a company called Famosa, who I believe were out of Spain. And they had three and three quarter inch Disney action figures of like Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone, all these uh, really obscure titles in this scale that I loved. And I I used to love to go over there and just sneak in their room and take a peek at everything. Um, I know there's a couple of squads of the slice who have tracked down some Famosa Disney figures. They are really, really cool. It's quite a cool line. Um, and that's where I sort of first learned about them, and it would take me several years to kind of get a sizable collection of those figures. I'm now starting to recall also we were on the same floor as, uh, I believe, Palisades and Soda Toys, um, both companies of which I had a lot of friends within, and I would go kind of check out their stuff. Uh, I distinctly remember seeing Soda's terminator 2 line which never happened um uh, sorry it might have been terminator 1 uh, i don't know might have been terminator <laughs> but um that was a really cool line I, I was really looking forward to uh actually let me make a correction here soda did the prototypes it was a Palisades line it would have fit in with their army of darkness sort of two packs that they were doing so uh, you know all these great memories of all these companies and retailers that no longer exist. Let's say mahalo to our friend Lance Tomimoto. He's got a good question here. I know you are a big Yodorovsky fan. What do I think of the Inkel comic? I found the Mobius art and initial storyline fascinating, but the ending was a huge awkward letdown. I feel they didn't know how to end it, so I gave up and... So they gave up and it turned into a vague metaphysical nonsense to cover lazy writing. I'm trying to save up for the complete Meta Baron collection... And hope to turn my opinion around on him, besides the Dune special, which I agree was fascinating. Uh, and this brought out, you know, other people who have strong opinions, obviously, of Yodorovsky and Mobius and Inkel. Um, you know, m- the vast majority of Yodorovsky's work is largely dreamlike and sort of stream of consciousness. And that doesn't really affix itself to understandable narratives or what we would consider strong. Conventional writing and storytelling. Uh, I, I think I have pretty much the same experience as you. Beautiful, fantastic art, like some of the best sequential art that's ever been put down on paper. Uh, story-wise, not much happening, and, and not much really going on. Um, I would say that the really the only thing I think Yodorovsky's done that I consider to be a linear story that sort of makes sense is a, a title called "Son of a Gun." Sorry, son of the gun. Uh, I just had to look it up. And he does have a co-writer on this, so that may be why it is much more of a sort of standard encapsulated story. Really, really, truly fantastic modern Western. Uh, That would make an incredible movie. Um, That's the only experience I've had with Yodorovsky that is sort of a traditional story. Uh, I've seen the majority of his movies, Holy Mountain Il Topo, Fendo Elise, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh and I've read a a good portion of the Meta Baron stuff and the incal. And I, I would say that, you know, that's just not his back. He he's not going to sort of lay out a beginning, a middle, an end, and uh, you know It just is what it is, sort of. There's no lack of imagination or inspiration there. Uh, But if you need a sort of traditional story structure to give you a satisfying feeling, he's not your guy. And look, I I kind of, uh, I'm in your camp here. I think that traditional stories, uh, they work for me, right? They tickle the right parts of my brain. The things that I think about that stick with me, that really influence me, have been these very traditional stories, um, you know, these heroes' journeys, these the things that uh, kind of get repeated over and over again throughout all cultures. Those are the things that I'm kind of attracted to, but I am glad for the more experimental stuff out there because I do think, um, you know, you kind of enjoy traditional stories, but you sort of subconsciously absorb things that are not like that, like watching a David Lynch film or, you know, uh, things of that nature. Next up, Alan Gadbois. How are you, my friend? I know last year other creators had Halloween-colored Glyos figures. Will we see any new characters sporting Halloween-like colors? Um, Not really. Not intentionally. I I typically don't do holiday-themed figures uh, because you really have a much smaller window in which to sell these. And a lot of my business is moving more towards these evergreen items that are always in stock. Uh, You know, that's a long-term goal of mine. And the problem with Halloween-themed things is once November 1st rolls around, (laughs) your sales kind of drop off dramatically. Uh, I was trying to time something that is tangentially a sort of uh, Halloween flair, for action figure, the month of October. But given all the delays that we've had pretty consistently every single month, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so that may roll into November and October may be uh, what November was originally slated for. So, um, I you know, there's nothing that's going to sort of profoundly beat you over the head with the theme of Halloween this October. Last year, we did a whole sort of bodega menu and lots of reveals throughout the month. Uh, Given the state of the supply chain, we just are not in a position to do that this year. Uh, But I I still think there's going to be a lot of exciting and interesting things coming in October. There are, I guess, like three or four long gestating things that will kind of finally bubble to the surface. Some of them revisions to older stuff and some new stuff and uh i, I think it's going to be an exciting debut for quite a few things least of which being Chromega. up next with gabe tovar i've noticed that when it comes to Saima's unarmored chest piece uh quote unquote the new chest the ball that goes into the head socket is really, really tight once in. I actually ripped off the ball by accident sometime back on a Ma when I was trying to change her head out. And this is even after warming that piece off, which usually works for me on other molds. Uh, it's usually only on the painted variants that I have had this happen to. He has also noticed stress lines on the ball joint after a few head swaps. So you bring up a fair point, and there's a couple things going on here. Uh, First, stress lines don't appear unless parts are are sort of pulled apart without heating first. And I am pretty uh, adamant and vocal about the need to heat up these pieces before you put them together initially, and to heat them up anytime you are sort of uh, doing swapping. You know that is sort of uh, the advice I always give for these. I don't really think it's a good idea for the longevity of these figures to be pulling them apart uh you know just based on sort of room temperature stress marks are only going to show up if this head has been pulled off a few times without heating prior it sounds like and i'll take you at face value that when this piece broke off it had been heated prior to you doing it that time you know i believe you there uh but if stress lines are starting to form then universally every time people may not be sort of heating these prior to doing a swap. The big reveal I'm going to let everybody in on here is that there is actually not a universal fit for the head ball joints to the reciprocal neck inputs on Knights of the Slice. Now there are some figures where this is very apparent and there are some figures where it's not so apparent. The reason being is that this is more of an art form than it is a science. Uh, The surface of plastic is very porous, it doesn't look that way to us, but there are microscopic imperfections along the grooves of these things. So, in the case of a ball joint and the sort of convex of that, we have an approximation, we believe it will fit. These things are sort of finely tuned by hand by the engineers that are there. And typically we get a fit that's pretty good. But over time, uh, with differences in temperature and with wear and tear, these things can fit less than perfect. As you correctly point out, the addition to paint, the, the addition of paint, rather, to the surface of a ball joint does add uh, an extra snugness. This is a, another layer of thickness. Whether or not we think of paint in that manner, it is not the sort of uh, default form of that outputted piece of plastic you are adding a coating to it that does, again on a microscopic level, add additional friction to the equation. This is a reason why some figures we have decided to have sort of detachable neck joints and some do not have them uh, if it doesn't sort of make sense for the sculpt and for the seamlessness of the figure. Uh, People have complained about the head of the old knight popping off with the neck joint far too easily, but the alternative is it puts a lot of pressure to have that as one solid piece. So, uh, you know, whatever the choice we make at the engineering level, there's always going to be sort of people that like that and people that are detractors of that more to the point. Um, feel free to send me a separate email. I'll gladly replace any pieces that have broken for you. And really people need to be heating these figures up to the point where there is almost little to no friction when they go to pull a, a piece apart. Um, A very easy way to do this, which I just did yesterday as I'm sort of fitting together uh, a new figure and testing it out, put it in a plastic bag, have some boiling water, just from a tea kettle, pour it in a mug, dip that plastic bag in the mug, and wait a couple seconds. You really want this to get incredibly rubbery. You You want these pieces to just almost fall off on their own. That is the best way to sort of preserve your figures So they hang around for a very long time, and they're very useful. Moving on to the next question from Jeremy Price. What are the reasons for Sen having a mask slash visor? Does the visor give him enhanced sight? Does the mouthpiece do anything, perhaps something to his voice? Do most Sen models not receive this, or are already busted theirs, or lost it? The removable mask, the one with the visor, and the skull head are my favorite feature of this epic work of art, so I am curious. I believe uh, somewhere in the copy for Sen 5, possibly in the campaign, the initial campaign, um, there is mention to some of the Sen robots preferring to have a sort of Faxil skin mask to sort of better integrate themselves amongst humans. Faxil skin uh, is also mentioned in normal combat. It plays an important part in some things to come up. So that's a... Uh, That's a bold, uh, highlighted definition you want to keep in your mind. In terms of the sort of uh, reasons for the visor or the mouthpiece, I mean, I leave that in the eye of the beholder. If you want them to have a sort of metallic voice through that mouthpiece and you want them to have x-ray vision, I think that is a 100% legitimate decision on your part. I would only be able to speculate In terms of what my original thoughts were with Sen 5 as I was, I don't know, six or seven years old when I did my first drawings, uh, likely I imagined he had sort of like Terminator or RoboCop uh, sort of computer vision. Um, And I think pretty easily like sounded like, um, you know, a Transformer. Next up, Sean Gordon. You've mentioned the financial constraints of your business with all the supply chain issues the world is working through right now. My question is, how much of an issue has this been for you creatively in regards to Knights of the Slice? Not even considering a new mold, but a new color for an existing style seems like it would take much longer and slow down the creative process and the speed at which you can tell your stories. Um, You know, Last year, it was definitely a gift. Uh, because I didn't know when I would have new product. And it made me adapt my storytelling to the completed figures I already had here. But more importantly, the spare parts I had. And I could piece together new characters as slices And keep things interesting. Keep the story moving forward. So I think something that, you know, could appear on the onset to be a handicap actually ended up helping quite a bit. Now this year... Um, I would say it's definitely much more difficult uh, just because we're still sort of dealing with the reverberations of sort of everything that got delayed last year. Um, I think just generally, like, I'm feeling pretty exhausted. I think most human beings are feeling pretty exhausted. We all collectively thought we'd be over the hump on this pandemic. And, uh, you know, I think creatively I'm having issues, but those are kind of outside of Uh, necessarily the supply chain and my ability to order things. I think this has also taught a lot of good lessons to me. Uh, You know, I find myself planning uh, in a much more concise manner for months to come. You know, typically I would buy six months to a year's worth of product, but I wouldn't necessarily know what month a figure might come out or how many I imagine I might need. So. I'm trying to be more finely tuned in how I approach those things. So I think some of my most creative ideas have come because of these challenges and these parameters. Now, if this problem continues to persist uh, into 2022 and beyond, I'm probably gonna feel, uh, you know, a little uh, worn out from (laughs) constantly adapting and and not being able to execute what I wanna do. But, uh, you know, generally, Um, I have an idea and I'm able to get that out to people, whether that's through a story or through an actual physical character release or even through just kind of an abstract idea that might go into a song. Uh, You know, I'm pretty fulfilled in that regard. I don't feel like I can't connect with other people or can't share an idea. So, you know, it's really about how that idea manifests. Does it only manifest as an action figure and as a toy? Can I just make it in the written word and get it out to people? And the fact that I have those ab- options, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for that. Next question from Sean Denny. I love this question. This is a good one. Uh, let's say you get to make a Night of the Slice fighter a la Street Fighter 2. Outside of the main cast, Rex, Vaughn, etc. Any unexpected characters or zany attacks that you would like to feature? Who would the final boss be? Boy, this is a lot of fun and... and an immediately, very evocative question. Um, you know, I guess the final boss would, for right now, the moment in time we are, would probably be Count Verkill, right? He would, he would be the big bad uh, in the present universe of Knights of the Slice. So, pretty happy with that. We would absolutely have to have Marcin in the fighting game. We would have to have a stage that's on top of a crane above Turbo Toll. Hey, maybe there's even, like, an F-Zero-style race level that's just a sort of uh, mini-stage. I want to see all the badass, beautiful women we have in this line. Uh, Princess Jasmine and Minerva. Um, you know, I, th- I think there's there's a lot that could be done here. Oh, you could have uh, Bollinger Burton, and he can kind of have his Hulk mold, mold where he, uh, you know grows in muscle mass instantaneously. Uh, you can have Saxon and Forrest, maybe they're a tag team. Like, there's there's a lot to, uh, to unpack here. This would be a lot of fun. And the beauty part is, you would save so much with just simply sprite swapping, right? So many of the characters reuse the same body type, which, I mean, let's face it, is an homage to things like Player 1 and Player 2 in games like Street Fighter. Um, you know, I think the... Uh, the hard work's already done i guess i would put the question out there to the fans and the squires of the slice especially those with artistic ability let's see the menu select stage for this theoretical knight of the slice fighting game you know i think that would be very easy for our talented fans to whip up uh maybe in a collaborative effort maybe one person can sort of uh build the select screen, and then you have other people kind of fill in each of the individual characters. Could be a fun little exercise for all of us to do. In fact, I'll even volunteer to uh, do artwork for one of the characters in that select screen. How about that? That sounds like a lot of fun. Next question from Zach Vaughn. I feel like you've answered this on an older Dastaza pod, but I'm searching here on Patreon and not finding anything. Is there a way to reaffix the black lining on Riftkiller teal? Uh, Some folks were utilizing a brush-on matte finish. Uh, You want to make sure it's matte and not glossy. Uh, Even something like Mod Podge could work for that matter. Gavin Rader wants to know, Have I seen Yodorovsky's Dance of Reality? Uh, after just stating all the films I've seen by Yodorovsky, no, I haven't seen Dance of Reality, uh, but I will add that to my list. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, Next up, Matthew Paquette. How would you rate the overall response to the Dino collaboration with Beasts of the Mesozoic? Do you foresee any future collaborations with them, knowing that Cro-Mega is on the way? The Cro-Mega art features him riding a pterodactyl. Um, I have been pushing David to... I, I have endless dino suggestions for david and um by the way i'm glad he brought this up because there is a kickstarter right now for tyrannosaurus rex from our good friends at uh, creative beast studios and beasts of the mesozoic um it should be pretty easy to find just uh look up either of those names this is the tyrannosaur series uh within one day it fully funded Uh, Their goal of one hundred and eighty five thousand dollars. These are some big boys. So that is a a cost that uh, makes sense to me currently uh, About let's see probably closing in on 48 hours live. They're at two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So big congratulations to David Um, These are spectacular. There are different t rexes in different sizes and scales so uh, I would definitely recommend going and checking this out. This is a huge, huge, tremendous success and I'm super happy for these guys. Um, and I for one want to pay T-Rex. Uh, now getting back to the question at hand, um, I rate the overall response for the Dino collaboration to be incredibly strong. It was really, really good for us. The idea for me and the planning for the quantity was I, I needed to have Dinos in stock until Chromega arrives and you know hopefully as a sort of evergreen item. If you notice our collaborations I I try to have those as evergreens. Uh, We still have a little bit although it is dwindling of our Thousand Toys figures. We still have at least one of the Super 7 2 packs that uh, you know is a great sort of crossover. Uh, Annex figures different story kind of harder to come by and to take a big position on. So those kind of came and went um, pretty quickly. But if it's up to me, I I like to keep these things in stock. So I would say um, David and I are both very interested in doing additional figures together. Uh, It will probably be a better time to reignite that conversation once I am through um, getting Chromega and making him available. I know that some people are going to pick up a dinosaur just when they pick up Chromega as our sort of Pangaea Island collection, which uh, I'm starting to get excited about, honestly. Um, so I would say we still have a little bit of time to go with this first collaboration. There is also uh, a specific dinosaur that me and David talked about pairing with my figures. Uh, I don't know that those are done with their pre-production stage yet. I think he's still working on them. So we're also waiting for that milestone to happen. But I would say, generally, I'm into it. Uh, last time I talked to David, he was into it. And I would uh, ask you all guys to uh, to go and support that campaign. Even if you're not in a position to back and throw him money, just share the link, and let's see how big that can really go. Next up, we have Thomas Pucci, who is breaking the one-question rule, but uh, I'll allow it here. Um, I'm quietly working on my own Glios figure. I have two questions. For the Knight of the Slice figures that are hand-sculpted from wax, epochs, clay, like Vector John Furkill, do you eventually 3D scan these physical pieces, uh, so you have digital models of them to go along with other Knight of the Slice figures that were digitally sculpted from the Gecko, like Radic Hackerman Man, Sent 5? And also, if the figure I'm making is clocking in around 35 to 40 points per figure, is that too much for a Glios figure? Should I cut the parts out and scale it back? So uh, these are some good questions here. Uh, I would say that every piece of Knights of the Slice has to sort of be 3D scanned eventually, whether it's I'm doing it or the people in the factory are doing it. Um, I would say at this day and age, and, and with the challenges we have to making plastic goods and the supply chain issues that I'm always talking about, I would say there is a great benefit to having 3D scans of any physically sculpted parts prior to uh, moving into uh, production. I think that that's a huge advantage. So if this is something that's not being created in 3D, you should probably make arrangements to have a high-definition scanner um, make digital copies of these things. And currently, the home high-res scanners are Adequate, but not great. So you do want to go to a physical studio that will scan these devices. Um, You know, I'm not sure. I I would just look up 3D scanning studios or things like that. Uh, You want to get some place that's doing like industrial scale scanning and work like that. The the home scanners aren't quite there yet. And they're they're certainly not there for the scale that I work at. Uh, Regarding the second part, a... Glyos figure that's clocking in at 35 to 40 parts per figure. I'm assuming you're talking about a scale that is similar to either the core GLIOS, which is, I guess, roughly 3 inches, or one scale, which is roughly my 3-3 three three quarter inch to 4 inch figures. Um, I have a hard time imagining a figure that 30 to f- 35 to 40 parts could exist in that scale. If you think of something like... Let's take the sort of, uh, you know, the 2000s era Microman, which probably has close to that many pieces. That is ABS plastic, right? You can't really have tiny, tiny moving parts made out of PVC plastic. There's it's too rubbery. There's too much memory and give in PVC. So you have to go with ABS if you look at what uh, was done with that Microman line and you can see the unending problems of utilizing that many parts in ABS in a smaller scale. Almost always those figures break before you even get them out of the package, or after very minimal play, uh, ABS is a more fragile material, but would be a necessity for something that required that many moving parts. So actually, I just pulled up the Microman 2005 series, this sort of standard base body, and I did account there are, as far as I can tell, 34 points, and that does not include any sort of pegs or any screws. So you could argue it's slightly more than that. Um, this is also without any accessories and without a sort of sculpted head that had a second piece like a, you know, a hair or a helmet or something like that. So uh, right off the base, that's about as many different pieces as you can get into that scale, and if you look at it, every single piece is made out of Uh, ABS plastic with the exception of the hands which are softer PVC that sort of slide into the forearm. Uh, I do not own any of these figures from circa 2005 made by Takara that are not completely busted. It's just a simple fact of using ABS and manufacturing. Uh, There is a very very short lifespan to these things. My advice would be to anybody who is sort of uh, starting down this path is to imagine your figure as having five points of articulation and until you can sort of print out and assemble and have work those five points of articulation don't add any additional ones Uh, this is a process you really have to have figured out prior to uh, stepping into manufacturing and quotation let's not even assume glios is in the equation let's assume you're going to be on the open market looking up factories on alibaba and pitching them your project, you need to have all the working parts in order. You cannot sort of assume safely that the engineers at the factory are going to be able to execute what you have in mind. Um, They may not be able to understand what you're going for with your parts count and your diagrams. You know, it would be exceedingly crucial to provide them with a working model, something that you've 3D printed, and that all the clearances and the surfaces are 100% tuned in. So I would say start at five points of articulation, test those out, uh, print as many copies as you need to until you get it right. And then from there, you can begin to sort of uh, augment that that articulation scheme. Moving over to Facebook questions, Roy Simmons do I have any? As a kid, my dog chewed up my blank stories. Uh, for Roy, his chewed up his Hoth Rebel Trooper one day, but he just talk, chalked it up to battle damage. Well, I grew up in a house filthy with dogs, uh, an accentuation on filthy. <laughs> and um, yeah, there were no figures that didn't have some kind of bite mark in them. Um, especially, especially Star Wars, Ken or Star Wars. I don't know why. They must have been mixing them in the same factory that uh, Gravy Train was made in. But there, I have, I had at one point no figures from my childhood that didn't have some level of bite marks and battle damage. And I sort of did the exact same thing. I just, you know, I sort of narratively decided that they had been injured in battle. There's also a famous story. uh, I've told it a couple times on Distazipod. You can probably go back to earlier episodes and listen to it. Uh, where I dropped my Bespin Han Solo on top of the kerosene heater in our living room because it sort of looked like the floor of the carbon freeze chamber. And um, <laughs> as you can imagine, that, that uh, chaos ensued. Um, but uh, great question. I, I think anybody who grew up with pets, specifically dogs, probably have very similar experiences. Sam Sherry wants to know, Will Sen units reach the triple digits? Uh, That all depends on you guys. If you keep buying them, I'll keep making them until we get into the hundreds. Cliff Uchida has a really fantastic question here. What's my overall thoughts on Pop Shop Live app? Uh, For those who don't know, Pop Shop Live app is sort of the integrated, uh, you know, like, what's the word I'm looking for here? Integrated, like, point of sale for shows like Decon. This is kind of an app-based storefront that people uh, need to utilize in order to get exclusives. If you're not attending the show, apparently also you have to purchase tickets to their shows through this. Although, I'm—that's uh, just what I've been told. I'm sort of saying that off the cuff. Um, if we zoom out a little bit, let's not just focus on Pop Shop Live, because there is a a trend of these sort of. Uh, trendy apps that you know promise to deliver an experience to the hobby of collecting. Uh, at Toy Pizza, Nikki and I got approached by probably half a dozen different companies launching something similar to Pop Shop Live, whether it was like an app where you could uh, sort of track your collection and trade things and, and show it off. You know, th- several times... There have been suitors who show up at the gates saying, "We have a new way to collect. We are disrupting collections. We are X, Y, and Z. like you know all the the terrible sort of language that goes into uh, private equity and startups and things like that. We've heard it all. We've been pitched all of it. We've these companies have tried to hire us, not Pop Shop, but these other companies tried to hire us to sort of do videos to encourage people to use this app or to help." Sell the idea of it. And whether we're talking about Pop Shop or any of these sort of uh, contraptions, uh, you know, the same things ring true. One, these seem like plutocrat solutions to problems that don't need to be fixed. And by that I mean, if you want to buy an exclusive from, say, Mattel or Hasbro, you just go to their website and you purchase it. And That's a pretty tried and true method, right? You don't necessarily need an extra step added into it. And what I think plutocrats in in this market tend to do is they may or may not actually know what they're talking about in regards to the industry they're trying to disrupt. They may or may not be collectors themselves. And they see the technocracy as something that's that's going to change the game. But oftentimes, It just sort of complicates the transaction. Now, feel free to discount what I'm saying here because I, full disclaimer, I've never used Pop Shop Live and I want to avoid it like the plague. Um, Reason being is in the very rudimentary literature that I've read about it or, um, you know, uh, my interactions with it or the, the sort of feedback I've heard from other people, it's all been pretty resoundingly negative. The thing that is sort of preventing me from doing a deep dive or learning anything more about an app like this is that I have a functioning e-commerce. It works really well. Um, If a party's not bringing anything to really uh, compel me to use an additional app, I'm not going to do it. If you told me that I would have a 300% increase in my audience by being on Pop Shop Live, if that was a... Uh, a guarantee in writing the creators were willing to make I would probably use Pop Shop Live uh, given that my only sort of uh, interactions with it or the, the sort of prevailing online sentiment is that it's, it doesn't work it's glitchy, um, people don't seem to have a lot of affinity for it that makes me have zero interest in sort of wasting the time to explore it I'm, uh, I'm very interested to hear if I'm missing the point here or if people have had good experience with it. If I, if I got anything wrong, just uh, drop me a line. Let me know in the comments. Thank you for the great questions this week. Before I go, uh, I want you guys to check out the Hollywood Reporter's article. It is Hollywood's Curious 4chan Connection. And uh, this is about a lawsuit and counter lawsuit happening right now in which it's been revealed that 4chan is either owned or uh, heavily invested in by the company Good Smile that you and I know. Really uh, kind of twisty-turny story here. A lot going on with it. Definitely check it out and read it. I think it's, uh, it's got some pretty staggering implications. So uh, I'll drop a link to that in the descriptions. You can check it out. Uh, with that said, I only got one more thing to say, and that's pizza out.